All right. I need a volunteer. This isn't coffee, by the way. It's not my drink this morning. Got anyone eager? I'm going to pick someone. It's going to be Mark Derrickson pretty quick here if uh, nobody else volunteers. All right, Natasha. You are up. Okay. Yes. Is that right? We're going to do that with Silas and everything? Fantastic. Because we're going to have fun this morning. We can do some science. Okay, Natasha, I need you to just get ready and prepared a little bit and ready for the part. Perfect, that's good. Okay, just while you keep getting ready here for a sec, I'm just gonna, we're going to do a little bit of high school chemistry. I'm going to refresh all of you. It's a bit of a quiz time. Uh, H2O2, anyone know what that is? Hydrogen peroxide, two hydrogen molecules, two oxygen molecules. So we have this beaker full of hydrogen peroxide, an Erlenmeyer flask. Thank you, Jen. A bit of the nerd came out there. I loved it. She's like, nice. Got some science kit. If we added a catalyst that broke off one of the oxygen molecules, what will we get? H2O2, got rid of one of those. We have, it's some math, right? Did Mission not do chemistry? Come on. I shouldn't have, the kids should have helped us out. Okay, I heard it. I did hear it. Water. We got water. Okay, water. Water and what's, what's the other thing going to do? Oxygen, yeah. So we should get some bubbles. And then here's a really fun, nerdy word I'm just going to add in. Uh, if we put in a surfactant, which is soap, it should, uh, it should foam a little, right? Should put the theory to the test. That's the hypothesis. Should put it to test. We're all ready. We got the safety on. We got the gloves. All right, let's do it. All of it, all of it. There we go. Oh, yeah. I don't know. That's for tomorrow, Grant, to figure out. Hey, there we go. Science. Right on. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you, Silas. Part of such a fun moment. That was fun. We should do more of this. I have been wanting to do a science experiment like up on the stage for like, I got to live out a bit of like an alter life there for a moment as fun. I think in a, you know, if things played out a bit differently, I'd probably like apply for a job at Science World and be the one who's like making stuff explode and spark and get kids all riled up. That's like a dream job. It's so fun. I got to live a bit out of that here. So thank you for indulging me a bit, but, um, this matters because that kind of stuff seems maybe nerdy, but taking reason and thought and thinking about our world, our universe matters because we are designed to think and be rational and understand our world around us. We're designed that we need to actually use our brains. So we're going to dive in this morning into a topic about faith and science, and does it work together? Does it collaborate? And, and we're just going to head on into that. Uh, by the way, my name is Grant, if you don't know me, and I'm super excited to be here with you chatting this through. So 
I'm just going to open up with a quick word of prayer. We're going to dive into this. God, thank you so much that you've created an interesting universe, a world around us that is worth study. God, I just pray that you open up our hearts and our minds to see how incredible the nature is around us, God. And for those of us who are maybe experiencing a hang-up of how can you exist, how can something invisible and challenging to prove exist amongst all the real things that we feel are around us, so God, I just pray that you're here this morning. Amen. So growing up, I was fascinated with learning, all the nerdy stuff, right? Like I'm wearing a nerd shirt this morning. I try to hide it, but I, I love it. And I, I just checked out, like, I remember it was just as learning, like, mechanic books and uh, creatures under the sea and all sorts of stuff. Like library, I knew it came back to me at one point when... Uh, my mom got a phone call from our school's librarian, a little bit concerned because all I was doing was checking out nonfiction books, and then I had this whole stack that apparently I think I scared the librarian. They thought I was going to build a bomb or something. And she's just a little bit like, you know, does, is your son a sociopath? Like, does he have the ability to imagine things? <laughs> she's like, I don't know. He just, he's just nerdy. He just likes learning stuff, right? So I was just diving into history and dinosaurs and space. Uh, then I did discover sci-fi, which was fun, right? It's just like a soap opera, but with robots and lasers. Um, it was super fun, but I loved science. I did science camp. I did science lab stuff uh, whenever there was an extracurricular activity for school. And, and it was awesome. It seemed great. Like, this was just fun, a fun thing to do. And um, I remember an interaction with a friend, though, at one point in school. And we were just chatting, we were like diving into stuff, we were, I, I forget, we we're probably taking a stove apart and we we're like looking at electricity and I wonder what this could do if it hits that thing. And then he asked me, he's like, so it's interesting, you like all this stuff, but don't you go to church? That's kind of like the first exposure, I realized like, oh, maybe, hmm, why, why would that be a, a thing? But then I, I remember too, it kind of continuing on from the other side. Uh, in Sunday school, there was you know, some questions and I was just talking all about the stuff that I was learning and again, the space and planets and stars and all these things in the universe. And, uh, and then I had a Sunday school teacher at one point who kind of reminded me of like, yeah, that's all cool, but remember, remember like you're a Christian, right? So you have to kind of tame the stuff that you're taking in and, and what you're learning. And it was kind of my first exposure to seeing that there's this dichotomy that maybe exists that suddenly it's kind of like, well, you can have a faith, you can believe in God, or you can use ration and reason and study the universe. And so suddenly like science and faith are these opposing ideas. Um, maybe you've had similar experiences, or maybe you're even here or you're listening online and you actually have this, ex this kind of experience of saying like, well, actually, no, I'm on the other side, and I think, like, faith is kind of this silly thing. Like, you got to believe in the make-believe, right? And God and miracles and spirits, all this stuff, like, it's not provable. Science proves things over and over again. So they don't fit. Of course they don't fit. But what I want to do is actually take a bit of a look into that, that split, it, why it doesn't exist that way, why I think they actually work together so well, why science comes out of a position of faith and why it actually builds up and points to our understanding and belief in a God of the universe. So here's the thing. Uh, this week and weeks previous, I probably read about, you know, it felt like two dozen books. It was 13, but it felt like two dozen books. And I just was taking in information and content and I was like, okay, all right. So I got, um, what are we going to do this morning? 42 minutes. Is that right? Y'all? We got it? Even that's not enough time. But 
what I'm gonna be doing is pretty surface level. I'm not a professor in any of these disciplines. I am not a doctorate in any of these disciplines. I've taken in information, I've gone to the Bible, I've taken some of my life experiences. What I wanna do is just put a preface of saying, I hope this morning inspires you to take this dialogue seriously. I hope it inspires you to take next steps in your own journey. And I hope that we all get a little bit nerdier this morning and we want to dig deeper. Out in the lobby, we have a little table with community group discussion guides for all of us involved in community groups. You can also grab one of the discussion guides and just do it on your own or with your partner or family or friends too. And we have a few books as well. You can take a look at some of the stuff that I've been studying, but I'm gonna be staying like up here, right? And the stuff goes so far deep, plummets below the basement. It's amazing how in depth these kind of things can go. Uh, but anyways, we're gonna start off here with what I think is one of the first problems. Why do we have this dichotomy where it seems like science and faith don't work, right? And I think a lot of times we think that there's a history of antagonism, of this kind of warring going on between, especially since the Enlightenment. Like, hey, we started to think and use our big brains, and suddenly that pushed religion and church out of the way. But that actually isn't accurate. So here's the thing. If, take a look at some of these quotes if you're not convinced yet about this idea of science versus faith. So Richard Dawkins wrote a book, The God Delusion, several other books, uh, often people kind of call him the prophet of atheism. He said, faith is like a mental illness, a great cop-out, the excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Another quote by uh, Professor Sam Harris, we have names for people who have many beliefs for which there is no rational justification. When their beliefs are extremely common, we call them religious. Otherwise, they're likely to be called mad, delusional, or psychotic. Do you see kind of this split here, this idea that science means thinking and reason, faith means ignorance? I remember too, when I was in school, this happened about 12 years ago, there was, who was one of my childhood, like, oh man, I looked up to him so much, one of my childhood heroes, Bill Nye, went on this debate with uh, a man named Ken Ham, who's the founder of the Answers in Genesis Creationism Project. They went on this debate, the idea was to talk about the beginning of the universe, and it quickly became into a dialogue of does God exist or not? And here's the thing, it was actually a very disheartening debate. Three million viewers watching from all around the world, about three hours of one person who refused to talk about the question and just had a lot of cool stories and studies about science. The other one who refused to talk across the aisle too, this was like watching a political debate who just referenced a book that said, yeah, God exists and just talked out of the Bible and there was no cross communication. And I think that's because we lock ourselves into these frameworks that these are two distinct practices. We can't move beyond them or apart. What was even worse was the comment section on the YouTube page for that stream, the live stream, because what it was full of hateful comments, full of harassment and bullying from both sides, saying you're worthless, you're dumb, you can't think, you don't understand, you're going to hell, completely missing the point of what's going on. This is more than just a divide, this is in opposition with antagonism. One more quote here I have from Steven Weinberg, said the world needs to wake up from the long nightmare of religion. Anything we scientists can do to weaken the hold of religion should be done. And it may in fact be our greatest contribution to civilization. I know some of you here are like hearing this stuff and you're boiling, you're like, come on, that can't be said, that's not true. 
But this is common thought, and this is a thing that we need to understand is not just come to because of people wanting to be antagonists. This is a pure conviction of passion in the same way that uh, us in a position of faith, or if you're here in a position of, of theism, you believe that there is a God, have similar kind of things. If you're saying, when you're reading these quotes, you kind of have a response of like, these people aren't rational, they're not thinking through, they're just evil and hateful and mad and mean. And that's not true either. Let's take a quick look. So history, this idea that the church has always been opposed to science. You've probably heard things like the church persecuted Galileo, they imprisoned him, they executed people for believing in too much science. And uh, without going into all the studies, that's not true. Uh, science pioneers like Aristotle, Philo, Galileo, Kepler, Pascal, Boyle, Newton, Faraday, Clark, to name a few of the many others, were all theists, people who passionately believed in the God of the Bible. And in fact, most historians point out this really cool fact, I thought, was that the Judeo-Christian framework was what actually served as the foundation for modern science to come out of it. This is what the history of the church and science looks like. From this quote here, the modern world is a product of a revolution of scientific method. What we're living in is because of the discoveries of technology, both in experiment and science. The citing of sources as evidence in history arise from the worldview of Jerusalem, not from Athens. From the Jews, not the Christ to the Jews and the Christians, not the Greeks. C.S. Lewis summed it up really well by saying this, man became scientific because they, they expected to see a law in nature. And they expected a law in nature because they believed in a legislator. This is what drove people to start studying deep. And actually the pattern of science and the church throughout history is not this clash it, it actually goes in a different direction. Uh, whenever major leaps in scientific discovery were made, Galileo, who proposed the fact that uh, we have a solar system that revolves around the sun, this heliocentric view of the world, and everyone says that caused the church to persecute him. It's not true, it's the scientific community that actually pushed back. They said, our whole understanding of the universe is not that. And then in an unfortunate realm, the fact that the politicians pushed back and then that church jumped into that because the church and the state were too closely linked in that time, they jumped in after the fact the scientific community pushed back. Edwin Hubble's discovery of the Big Bang, this massive proposition, everyone says, well, and the church stood up strong, actually it was a scientific community that said, you just propose something that sounds like the way in this quote here I love from J.M. Worsinger, something that seemed to give in to the Judeo-Christian idea of the beginning of the world. It seemed to call for a supernatural creation and it took time and observational evidence and careful verification and predictions made by the Big Bang model to convince the scientific community to accept this cosmic genesis. It was a successful model that imposed itself on a reluctant scientific community these scientific discoveries happen and typically the first thing for people who are close to the Bible and close to God are like, yeah, we knew that. We understood that because we know that there's a God who created the universe and the scientific community and the political community pushes back and says, you changed our understanding. And then when traditions get involved, then we have this clash. So what's going on? Why have we changed a little bit? Now, I do wanna kind of give a bit of a catch up too that it is in constant flux. We're not in this direction of science pushing out faith. And in fact, in all leading areas of scientific discovery in particle physics, in philosophy, in genetic study, there is an increasing 
commonality for theism, a belief in a God, because when most scientists dig into these realms of study, they find more questions than they have answers for, and they find more metaphysical question marks than physical question marks. So what's going on? I think, I think here is what has kind of created some of this battleground, and it's because it's not a position of ration versus ignorance. It's not reason and you have scientific method or you believe in fairies. It's because of a conflict of worldviews. And it's something that we all need to accept and understand. So what we have here is the need to understand what, what we're believing. Because when we get statements like, again, Richard Dawkins, who had another thing saying, there's no heaven, no afterlife, that is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the dark. You don't say those things because of a scientific conviction. You say those things because of a defense of your beliefs, a defense of your faith position. We all have a faith position. So, and Michelle, I'm actually skipping over this one section here. And we're going to another thing of what one philosopher proposed is what we all answer in our lives. Whether you intentionally do it or not, we have this set of questions we all answer that construct our worldview. And it goes like this. So we have these four questions. Who am I? Where am I? What's wrong? What is the fix? Let me break that out a little bit because it's fascinating. And, and answer these in your head as you're going through. Everyone has these answers. Who am I? Like, like what am I? Do I exist? Am I real? Am I thinking? Is it beyond just your name? What are you? Big question, right? Where am I? What is the stuff around me? Are all of you projections in my imagination? I'm staring at a wall in a mental health facility right now. Or are you real? Am I having relationships and conversation? What's the universe? Can I study it? Is it aliens? Is it a giant projector screen in the sky? Is it an expansive universe? What's wrong? And this one needs a bit more. The idea is what gives you fulfillment in life? What is purpose, but what prevents that? What is the problem? What's the goal? What's the problem? And then you come to, what's the fix? How do you overcome those obstacles? We all answer these questions all the time. Every decision we make, every action we take, when we read a book, when we watch a TV show, when we talk to a friend, when we choose to go into a career field, we're answering all of these things all the time. It's your drive, it's your motivation. It's a framework that creates a religious framework around all of us whether you commit completely to naturalism or you kind of move towards a position of faith and uh, theism, you answer all of these questions and you build a bit of a framework around you. And having doubts about your framework is not a cause for alarm because having doubts is actually just another set of beliefs. It's not that you're saying, okay, I'm actually going to a neutral position. See, the, the thing is that happened is in the Enlightenment time, this idea of secularism, have you heard that word before? This idea that there was a method of thinking that was completely neutral, that didn't have politics, it didn't have religion, it didn't have faith positions, it didn't have traditions, it was just a completely neutral way of being was birthed and it, it was assumed to take over everything. This is gonna be our neutral. Now the problem was as a complete myth because the secularism in the West is different than the secularism in the East is different than the secularism in Antarctica is different than the secularism at the North Pole. 
there is no complete true neutral. We always trade off one set of beliefs for another. If you're doubting an existence in God, that's because of your belief that there is no God. It's another set of doubts. It's another set of beliefs. So what this all kind of boils down to, if you're still following with me, I'm just trying to build up a framework. We'll get into the really good stuff. Is that the scientific method is not designed to answer metaphysical questions. It's a physical realm of study. It's not capable of speaking into it. And th this kind of flies into the face, and this is where you see the problems. You get uh, Sam Harris saying, atheism is not a philosophy or even a worldview. It's just an admission of the obvious. But then you push back on all the admissions of what is obvious to you takes all of this answering those four questions, right? It's the question of why. And, and let me give you an example, I think, of how that uh, plays out really well. So in high school, I had a car, this fun V6 Nissan, and I modded the daylights out of that thing. It was so much fun. I was discovering how to do mechanics, uh, wiring stuff. I put like cool colors and lights underneath the car, right? Big loud exhaust. I learned to weld on that car. It was embarrassing and obvious. This thing was fun and loud and poorly put together. And when I eventually outgrew it, I had such a hard time letting go of it because it was kind of valueless. Like nobody wanted to buy this thing but I, I, it broke my heart to think of it going to the scrapyard. And so I finally found somebody who was willing to take on the project. They're like, okay, yeah, I'll take it on. And, you know, this is a pretty sweet car. And I was like, sweet, I gave it to him for free. Cause I was like, please just let it live on in another life. And he could appreciate it and have the passion. I, I hope I haven't followed up with, but I hope he spent a long time figuring out what I've done to it. But nobody has a hope of understanding why. <laughs> Only I know that and I might not even remember it all. Why is different than what? We understand what in incredible ways. We understand what happened. I know why, I mean, I could tell you the why. I wanted to have a little bit of a fun show and, and see if it worked. I'm glad it worked. We had a few failures on dry runs last night. I just, as a, you know, a spectacle. I love a spectacle. Why is a completely different question and the danger now happens when a community uses a method of understanding to understand what, the physical what, and starts to project and preach whys out of that truth. Atheism tries to begin to create answers to the why, and it forms itself into a religion, and now we can see why there is this battle. We're not actually talking about a battle between reason versus faith. We're talking about a battle of two religious views. And there's problems on both of those sides. I'm gonna, I'm gonna explain that a little bit. But the reality is that science alone cannot prove or disprove God. This one quote from Harvard biologist sums it up really well. It says, it's not the methods or the institutions of science. Oh, I, I skipped the order. We'll get back to it. My apologies. <laughs> Technology this morning. Science cannot prove or disprove God, but what it can do is point to the fascinating gaps in our physical understanding that might start getting us to ask the questions, why? And then we look to different tools. Then we look, start looking to theology. We start looking to metaphysical understandings. So have I lost you? Are you still with me? Are we there? Are we tracking? I don't see like many notes being taken. So you guys didn't have like the pages of notes I had to take this week. I don't know how to interpret that. Alvin Plantinga, 
who is con, uh, considered by many people to be one of the greatest living philosophers and a theist at this moment. He actually was responsible for huge shifts over the last few decades in academic departments and universities all over the world, suddenly finding it okay. One quote says, it, it was like almost overnight, it became acceptable to argue for theism, which for a century was seen as ignorant. Alvin Plantinga brilliantly argues for 24 unique evidences where our physical understandings run out and we can start to argue for the existence of God. We don't have time for 24 this morning. Do you guys have room for two? Because these are the fun stuff. This is, okay, we're going to do two. And like I said, this is going to be top level. We got two areas that have a convincing argument for where we got to start asking the question of why. And if you're here joining in on this and you're pretty set in like, I know why. I've figured that out because I've understood all the physical what's and why did not lead me to God. We're gonna push on that a little bit harder this morning. So the first one is this idea of the evidence of morality. To make it really simple, why you think something's right or wrong. It, it's, this, it's the thing that led C.S. Lewis, uh, who was a proud and devout atheist for a lot of his life into academic study to start pushing up against the reason, he said, we all can think of conversations or times where people argue I, like they did something wrong. That wasn't very good. You go to the supermarket, somebody budges and cuts in front of the line, or actually, no, here's my least favorite. When you're at the grocery store, right, and you're at the checkout line, and somebody forgot something. So they're at the checkout, the cashier's done all the stuff, I need to go get a can of soup. They run back and make everyone wait for 10 minutes, and everyone's steaming, right, because you're like, that was wrong. It's like there's this unspoken agreement that everyone has like that here's the common practices of the world. This is right, this is wrong. And this is what builds up the case for morality. Why do we think that way? So here's where we can have a couple splits of view. The commonplace naturalism thinking is this idea that we have everything about us, our traits, what we think about, what we do, five fingers and toes, is because of an evolutionary process that created in us whatever it took to survive, whatever it took to move life on ahead. This is only common thinking in the past century because there are some deep implications with it that often we don't like to wrestle with or acknowledge. And what this comes out of is taking a look in a study of the animal kingdom, why things develop in ways to adapt, to survive, to grow, the survival of the fittest. And then we start applying that to our minds and we start making assumptions that every single thing we think and do and understand and believe, even the creations and understandings of religion. The Bible was written at a moment because of this naturalistic need to have a hope written down on paper is one of the explanations. Now, see if you can follow me on this. This is where this thinking kind of falls flat on its face is because that thought process, that all of what we understand is just a result of natural uh, evolution, that thought is the result of natural evolution. Does that kind of make sense? It's a circular argument, thank you, Rob, that actually, you know who came up with that argument? Charles Darwin, the guy who founded this stuff, said, within me lies this suspicion, this doubt, this horrid fear that my, my thoughts are just the rambling mind of a monkey. And they can't be trusted. It's, it's arbitrary. Somebody said the reason why we think murder and rape is wrong is as arbitrary as the fact that we have toenails. It just happened. That doesn't feel very convincing. It's arbitrary. It's meaningless. It's pointless. 
And in fact, the majority of the traits of compassion and sacrifice and servanthood we have fly in the face of the animal kingdom. Timothy Keller says, how could these traits have come down as means of preservation? Such traits would lead towards the annihilation of the human species unless we had some sort of supernatural intervention that kept us preserved. Richard Dawkins was even pushed on, why are you married? Monogamy does not work in the animal kingdom if you're trying to preserve and spread life. And Richard Dawkins actually replied, I'm making an un-Darwinian decision in this moment in my life. Which if you actually understand and go deep into that idea of naturalism, you cannot make an un-Darwinian decision. Every single thing you do is Darwinian. So here's the, here's the pushback. So the next one, now we start saying is okay, there's moral relativism. It's this idea that all of us have our own created understanding and idea, also a shallow, I'm not even gonna spend too much time into it. The reality is with this opinion, you can't actually have an opinion on anything. You can't think anything is good or bad. Somebody could decide to say, I, I want to steal everything you have, and that's just their truth, right? I, a question was pushed one time, uh, somebody was challenging, there's this argument at a bar, and they said, okay, so what if, you know, your, your, your friends are traveling, and what if they went somewhere, really undeveloped tribe, and they decided to eat your sister? That was just what they thought was true. That's what they had developed. That was just, it's cannibalism as a thing. And, and the push was like, how would you feel about that? You can't feel like that's good or bad. And then they got to the point of like, I guess you almost have to respect the commitment. I guess that's okay then. And you start to disregard your heart. Now, what if we could push back on that? Uh, because the fact is when there's studies that have been done taking a look at moral decision-making, the classic trolley problem, the trolley's gonna go run over five people, but you could flip a switch, it's gonna go run over one person instead, would you do it? 97% of people, regardless of worldview and faith and religious background and place, all agree on the same thing, to make the decisive action is more morally wrong. And lots of people argue to say, see, you don't need God to make the right decision, but the Bible says we have the morals, the law written on our hearts. So here's the, here's the option. You have naturalism, you have that idea, or you have uh, what we read here in Romans 2.14. Indeed, when Gentiles, people who were not born up or raised understanding God, who do not have the law, do by nature the things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciousness also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. The Bible comes along and offers a different framework and says this morality we wrestle with and understand with has a meaning and a purpose and was ascribed to by a creator. Just wrestle with those two balances. It's worth asking the question. Okay, the second one, that's one piece, moralism. The second piece is really fun because it gets more nerdy again. We're just gonna go full circle, dive back into it. We just argue about the idea of why moralism, creator of the universe. And the next one is cosmology. All the big things around us, all the big stuff, when you look up in the stars, and I mean, now you see Starlink satellites flying by and it's all synthetic, but all the big cool things happening. Uh, who saw the harvest moon? Was it last night, two nights ago? Insane! It's like the moon's right in your face and you can start seeing it, it is so cool. All these amazing things. Now, 
1929, Edwin Hubble made this, what's often referred to as the greatest discovery of modern science. He looked through his 100-inch telescope in California and he observed that all the galaxies and all the stars and all the celestial bodies seemed to be moving away from a common point of origin, which led him to theorize of the Big Bang. And in fact, what it was is all the stuff in the universe was at one time flung apart by a massive force. It could be summed up in this statement. The universe had a beginning. It began to exist at one point in the past. And now for thousands and thousands of years, the common thought was the one constant we can understand and measure up to is the universe just is. It just is. Things develop and grow, but the universe, the stuff everywhere just is. It didn't start. And then one scientist comes along and says, I think it started. And it's fascinating because, again, the theists all over were like, yeah, we know. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God made, and it started. And it's fascinating. Now, here's the thing. It's a super neat observation, and it took the scientific community decades after to rationalize how does this fit with a natural worldview. And they've come up with a lot of theories, but what's also neat is all the different disciplines of science have taken a look to study what happened, how did that happen, how did this Big Bang or this creation start of the universe happen. And one of the things, I, I need another volunteer. It's going to be another volunteer. Got another object lesson. I'm just going to start picking on people. Come on. It's going to be Mark Dirksen again. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Mark. What mathematicians started to come up with is the fact of how unfathomably intricate this procedure was to create this moment. And in fact, Stephen Hawking even said at the rate of expansion, one millisecond after the Big Bang, these are some fun big numbers, all right? after the Big Bang had been smaller by 100,000 million millionths, the universe would have recollapsed. So then mathematicians got all their algebra and big calculators out and they figured out something. They figured out that, well, let's, let's, we gotta visualize it because I couldn't write it out on here. So Mark, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you the whole roll. I'm gonna hold on to this. So just keep unrolling that, keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay, we're gonna stop here. So this is, it's a big number. There's not actually a term for these numbers. So here's the big number. What we have is, this first one here is 10 to the 13th power. This is how many cells are in the human body, the first blue line. We've got to the second line. That one is how many stars are estimated in the entire universe. How many stars there are. It doesn't even look that big, right? We should have done bigger paper and had you walk like twice around the building. Um, that is 21 zeros after, after a one. Okay, let's keep going a little bit further. What's the next one we got? Let's keep going. Oh, we got one more. This one here, 10 to the 27th power. This is how many atoms are in the human body. 27 zeros. Let's keep going. Keep going. This one's going to go. I think we got ways to go. We're going to keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, there we go. 10 to the 70th power. This is how many atoms are in the entire universe, and not A-D-A-M-S, not like a guy's name Adam, like atoms, in the entire universe, 70 zeros. Okay, let's keep going, let's keep going. I'm gonna walk this way, because I know what's gonna happen here. You let me know when we get there. There we go. 10 to the 138th power, it's a fun, see that? To the 138th power, mathematicians figured for all the variables to work out and understand, the odds of that happening by natural forces were one in this number. 
Yeah, there's no, there's no thing for it. A Googleplex is a little bit more than this, but uh, it's, yeah, amazing. Thank you, Mark. All right. Here's the implications of it. You can have a few fascinating uh, thoughts about this point. The, the first one is lucky us. Amazing that that happened. One chance in 10 to the 138th power, a number that literally, there's no fathomable understanding of a number that big. Now, here, here's the thing. Who has played cards? I shouldn't ask that in a Mennonite church. I was even going to say poker, and I changed my mind. Do you know what a royal flush is? You, okay, just like nod, right? And I won't like out any of you. You understand poker hands. Okay, so you get dealt a royal flush, right? And you like, you can't even contain yourself. Like bluffing, it's just, you know, it's so rare that's not going to happen. I think what the odds of it are, oh, I should have held it up there. It's uh, one in 10 to the fifth, right? So that's like... It's like this far down the line, right? So it's still unlikely to happen. And in fact, most medical miracles, when uh, doctors say like, there's no chance that this could happen without a miraculous thing happen here in just one in a thousand, a tenth of a percent. You got Delta Royal Flush, right? It's only one, one in uh, five. Now, pretty lucky, right? But then you got Delta Royal Flush again the second time. You're already, you, if you're playing that game, you're already thinking like, you're cheating. They're probably thinking on the first time. By the third time, for sure you're cheating. That's not a chance. I get odds, but odds don't actually happen. They don't actually play out. That's why we don't actually win the lottery much. I don't know if anyone here has. You're keeping it quiet. I, we know the tithing statements. Nobody here has won the lottery. <laughs> this number would be like being dealt. You're playing 24-7 poker and you're dealt a royal flush every hand for the rest of your life. Now, the mathematical odds make a number that big. No rational person thinks that that's legit. When you think about the reality, you say, you are cheating. This deck of cards is literally only 10 jack, king, queen, ace in the suit of hearts or spades. I don't know it well enough to know. That's the thing. So lucky us falls apart a little bit. It could be incredibly lucky us. That's true. Or what are becoming more popular frameworks of thoughts is the fact that uh, what's called the nothing hypothesis. This is so unlikely to happen, and we can't even understand the creation, the actions that's triggered it. Uh, as Stephen Hawking popularized, nothing plus nobody caused everything. One pastor had a, a hilarious um, example that it makes sense. So, you know when you're, you're like sleeping at night and you hear something crash outside or whatever and you, you hear it, so you wake up and you're like, you ask your spouse, you're like, what, what happened? And they're like, nothing, go back to sleep. Nothing is not a real answer. You know that's a stupid answer. It's just what people say when they want to go back to sleep. It's just an excuse to get out of the thing. The nothing hypothesis doesn't add up to a whole lot. So then the next one is this idea of a multiversal theory, which says that, yeah, it's true, this is in, the, the universe may, might not be infinite, it maybe had a beginning, but there are infinite amount of universes, so we can kind of reclaim that sense, and it just keeps going in a loop. Maybe it's however many billion years, or maybe there's all of them happening at the same time. But again, it takes a tremendous amount of faith for that position, so you're just arguing for a position of faith. And actually, the most growing theory, and this is legit amongst a lot of my friends, is the idea that aliens did it. Or we're living in a simulation. In fact, 
many, many scientists say it seems more likely that aliens did it or were in a computer simulation than this is all natural, but here we are. Aliens did it. Or we have the biblical account that drives right from Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God started this in an intricate, incredible, amazing universe that we can study. Now, here's, here's why the framework of a biblical Christianity actually birthed science, because we have a God who created a real universe. It's not an illusion. It's legitimate. And it is creation. It's apart from God, so that it's not actually this, we don't worship the universe. It's worth studying, and it has order. He brought order into the chaos all comes from the Genesis story. And then, in fact, he placed us into the middle of it with marks of authorship. We are created in the image of God, so we have the capacity to understand this universe. See, these are the kind of frameworks that are actually essential to diving into the method of science. You get Eastern religions like animism where everything could be a a deistic object of worship. You can't study a cow. It could be your grandma. I shouldn't have said that. Um, or you get these ideas of, of polytheism where it's, if you can't explain it, a god did it, right? The tides moved because a god did it. Poseidon wanted the tides to move. In, in a Christian worldview of biblical theism, it says we dig into the world because God created intricately and amazingly, designed us with a human mind capacity to understand it. And it has marks of the creator to understand it. Uh, we have here in Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools written 2,000 years before our modern moment of secularism saying atheism's rational. It's faith in God that's foolish. So let's wrap this up. Let's, let's wrap this up back to my story of encountering this uh, conflict between faith and science. I hope that I've been able to establish that that's a myth. They're, they're not in conflict. But we need to all admit that we have a faith position. And in fact, that faith position inspires us to create a religious-like framework around every single thing we do and think and say. And the thing is, we need to start embracing the scientific method, cross-examination, study, and evidence, and answering questions in the realm of the subject we're studying. We need to do that in our lives. We need to do that with rational thought. You might be checking this out if you're a little bit on the edge of something like faith. A position of ignorance is not okay. Now the thing is too, as believers and followers of Jesus, as believers in this God who designed us in this way, blind faith is not okay. Mark 12.30 says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Written right into the core, Jesus says you can't just be blind and ignorant about this stuff. You need to actually study it. In fact, uh, in First Peter, another book in the Bible, goes even further. Uh, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for your hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. 
you can't just say, I believe in God because that's what my parents told me and it feels good. That's not in the Bible. You don't actually get that support. You need to dig in deep and look in and understand. So here's the questions that we're just going to end with. Is where in your life have you been blind in faith? That you just said, I don't need to understand God. I know God's fine. He's trusting. And then you, you kind of confront with this biblical statement of saying, no, no, you need to be prepared to give a rational, real understanding for why do you believe. And then on the flip side, for those of you who are here who are on the skeptical side, that's good. You're asking questions. Where are you stopping yourself from asking further questions? Because when the what runs out, the why is what's left. Where are you too scared to ask the why? See, here's where we really flip it on its head, where we have many um, atheistic thinkers saying that faith is just something that is like a warm blanket that keeps us feeling safe and gives us hope when we don't want to face real answers. Atheism stops short of asking so many questions. An understanding of the world without a God or without a creator does not ask enough questions and in fact becomes a delusion that says we have no responsibility, no design, no purpose, no intention. We are a mathematical mistake. If God exists, then you exist because the God, the creator of the universe, who has all this incredible power, all this incredible capacity, wanted you to exist. It's incredible, hey? If God exists, then you exist because God wanted you to exist. You're not a mistake or a result of probability. You're designed in the image of that same author of the universe. And this is the design, this is the framework that the Bible authors, offers, that this framework that we're in, that God, the creator of the universe, loved us so much. We were created intentionally and on purpose, with free will, with this morality, with this brain that does all sorts of crazy things, including sin, this thing where we veer off and we disregard, and in fact, like in the Bible says, we become foolish and ignore and disregard God. And he says, I still want you back. So he comes after us, comes after us, like we sang in the song. And he offers his son as a sacrifice, comes into the world, shows us the design of humanity in Jesus Christ, what humanity is meant to look like with perfect relationship with God. And then we experience salvation when he died on the cross and experience all of that, that real visceral life that we study deeply so that we can have eternal relationship with God and we can exist in that. That's the framework the Bible author offers. And it's worth considering, it's worth opening up to, it's worth asking those questions of why. Amen? Awesome. I do want to just encourage again to dive deeper into some of these topics. Where have you let your faith be too blind? Where can you ask deeper questions? There's some resources out in the lobby. Next week, Pastor Michael's bringing a message that's going to help us take a look at this idea of there are a lot of understandings of God. What makes Christianity the one worth looking into? It's going to be fantastic. God, thank you so much that we are in an incredible universe created with your marks of authorship. God, thank you that we exist because you wanted us to exist. God, there can't be a better understanding of life than that. God, challenge us to go deep, to understand deeper. And God, to open up to the amazing things in the world. Uh, God, I just am so excited for where these conversations can lead and we ask more questions of why. 
and those come out of asking so many of the questions of what. Thank you that you've made us with the capacity to understand your amazing world, God, and that the world is truly beautiful. Pray this in your name. Amen. I just want to send you off with reading here from just Psalm 111, these beautiful words, uh, starting in verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. Just to repeat that one line, great are the works of the Lord, and they are pondered and studied by all who delight in them. Have a great week.